Let us pray together. Father, we ask you to speak now through your word. We thank you that you have given us your word as a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. Father, without your word, we are in the dark. But Father, don't just speak to us. We ask that by the power of your spirit, you would transform us, that we might put into practice the things we hear. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Last time we looked at James 4, we saw that this passage, this this section uh, in James, is about the antithesis. That's what it's been called, the antithesis. That is, the sharp line that is drawn between those who love God and those who love the world. It has to do with where our affections are, two different ways of life. Uh, two different kinds of people distinguished by their fundamental love, their fundamental friendship. Are you friends with God or are you friends with the world? You know, we hear so much today about unity, uh, about how we're all in this together. Uh, we've got political slogans like One Alabama that are supposed to bring us together. Um, I think all of that really in one sense is a sham. Uh, those who use slogans or sayings like that don't really mean them. Uh, they don't intend to simply surrender to those they disagree with in order to create unity. The reality is there is division in the human race. This is a fundamental fact of life and of history and of human experience. There is no getting around the fact that the human race is divided. There is an antithesis. Humanity is deeply divided. It's it's a fundamental division that goes as deep as it could possibly go. But what is the fundamental division in the human race? James, again, draws the line between those who are friends with God and those who are friends with the world. But all throughout history, people have tried to draw the antithesis in some other way. To put the good people over here and the evil people over there. In our day, the main form this takes is what we call identity politics. You maybe have heard me talk about this before. Identity politics tries to redraw the antithesis in different ways. Might be race, where the line is drawn between black and white, and a person's skin color becomes the single most important fact about them. That's how racists draw the antithesis. It might be economic class. The 1% against the 99%, or more generally, the rich versus the poor. This is how Karl Marx redrew the antithesis, the basic line in the human race, the basic warfare within the human race for Karl Marx was between different economic classes. It might be gender. We hear talk about the so-called gender wars that pit men against women, uh, that turn men and women into competitors instead of compliments. That's how feminists draw the antithesis. Uh, I have heard even of supposedly conservative women who say that they will vote for the Biden-Harris ticket in November simply because it has a woman on it. And, And for them, it's that important to have another woman in that kind of position of power. That's a redrawing of the antithesis. So it is the sisterhood above all. Again, it's making gender or sex the basic line within the human race. Against all of that, James reminds us of the only division in the human race that really matters. The only division within humanity that really matters is this one. All throughout scripture, the line is drawn between those who love God and those who love the world. Those on the one hand who trust God and those on the other hand who trust idols. 
The contrast is between what Scripture calls the righteous and the wicked. These are the most basic categories, really the only categories of the human race. What is most important to your identity is not your race or your class or any other feature about you like that. What matters most is this. Are you in Christ Jesus by faith? Have you been united to Christ Jesus by faith? Have you repented of your sins? Do you seek to obey God's word? That's it. That's the fundamental division. That's the only division within the human race that matters. And it's really not just this passage in James chapter 4 that speaks of this antithesis, this line, this division within the human race. All throughout the letter of James, we find there are two kinds of people, two paths you can walk with two ultimate destinations. James' whole point in this letter is that we prove the reality of our faith by how we live. How we live demonstrates what side of the antithesis we are on. And he gives us a series of tests to show us this. So the first test, way back in chapter 1 at the very beginning of the letter, concerns trials. Do we respond to trials with joy? Trials can only do their work of bringing you to maturity if you endure them joyfully recognizing they come from God's hand and they serve his good purpose. Then there's temptation. How do you respond to temptation? Who do you blame for temptation? Then there's preaching and teaching. What do we do when we hear the word? Does it go in one ear and out the other? Or do we hear it and then put it into practice? There's the test of wealth and poverty. Do we trust in riches? Do we visit the widow and the orphan? Do we care for the needy? Then there's the test of our profession of faith. Do our words and our deeds match? Are we who we say we are? Do we have the faith of demons who know there is one God, who can mouth those words, there is one God, but who clearly don't obey him? Or do we have a living breathing, working, obeying faith. The kind of faith that James says leads to final salvation, final justification at the last day. Do we just go through the motions when we say the creed? Or does that creed shape the whole of our lives? Does it determine how we live our lives? So it's the most important thing about us. Then there is the test of the tongue. What about our speech? Do we talk the language of heaven or of hell? Does our tongue burn with the Pentecostal fire of God's spirit or with the fire of hell? Your tongue's on fire one way or the other, but what kinds of fires are you are you spreading through your speech? James gives us the test of the tongue. And then the test of wisdom towards the end of chapter 3. Which wisdom do we live by? The wisdom which is from above and that brings peace or the wisdom that is from below that is envious and self-seeking? And all of that brings us then to this section in chapter 4. But before we dig into this further, let me clarify something. Do not misunderstand this when I speak of the antithesis. There is this bright, sharp line drawn within the human race. And again, this is the only division within the human race that matters. But the antithesis does not mean, for example, that we hate those on the other side of the line. No, not at all. In fact, what we see again and again in Scripture is that love, the love of God's people, reaches across the antithesis. Jesus said, love your enemies. So the antithesis doesn't mean we view those on the other side of the line 
as objects of hatred in any kind of way. No, they're objects of love. And we want to share God's grace and God's mercy with them so they can be drawn over to this side, to our side of the antithesis. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. Here's what I find really interesting in James chapter 4. James opens with the question, this question to the church community, where do wars and fights come from among you? Among your members. Why do you have this, this fighting and this quarreling within your community? He's talking about fights and wars within the church. And it seems what he's indicating here is that there are people who are on the wrong side of the antithesis who are inside the church. They are false uh, believers. They're, you know, we've got the hymn that says they're false sons in her pale. That's the kind of thing James is describing here. People who are in the church, but they're not living like it. They're in the church, but they're not friends with God. They're friends with the world. Just as James has already shown us that some in the church have a dead faith and a demonic wisdom, so we see the same thing here. This is a warning he gives to those inside the church. And he's talking about conflict inside the church. And what he wants to do here is, like a good doctor, diagnose this conflict so he can prescribe a remedy. He's talking about this conflict inside the church, and he wants to trace it to its source so it can be eradicated. Now again, I want to clarify something here before we get into this. When there's conflict in the church, there are several different possibilities. It could be that one side is right and the other side is wrong, and it's that simple. It's just a black and white issue. We might think of here of Galatians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul has to confront the Apostle Peter because Peter has withdrawn from table fellowship. He stopped having table fellowship with Gentile Christians. Peter actually was there misdrawing the antithesis, misplacing the antithesis, making it between Jew and Gentile, instead of those inside of Christ and those outside of Christ, whatever their race or ethnicity might be. And Paul has to confront Peter to his face, and he says, you're not walking in line with the gospel. And it's really clear. Paul's in the right, Peter's in the wrong. There's conflict, and there's one who's right and one who's wrong. Or we might think of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul says to the church there, uh, there must be divisions among you to reveal who has God's favor. There must be divisions among you to reveal who has God's approval. Jesus himself said he came, uh, in one place he said he came not to bring peace, but a sword. And said even families might be turned against one another by his gospel. There are legitimate and necessary divisions within the church precisely because there is this antithesis. We cannot always have peace. We can't always have unity because sometimes there is error that is so serious it must be corrected. The very gospel is at stake in it. To to, to be united would require compromise to the point of unfaithfulness. There's that kind of division. Obviously, that's not what James is talking about. There are places to stand and fight. That's not what James is talking about. There are are other possibilities here. Uh, It could be that both sides are in the wrong. It could just be both sides are wrong about something. This was uh, often the case when there was conflict in uh, Old Covenant Israel's history. If you look at some of the conflicts, say, during the, the monarchy period of Israel's history, a lot of times there's really no good guy anywhere to be found within Israel, within the covenant community. For example, in David's conflict with Ahithophel, this is how it is. Everybody's in the wrong, everybody involved. When the disciples of Jesus are arguing with one another over who will be the greatest, 
They're all wrong. (laughs) They're all wrong in that case. They're in conflict with one another, but there's not a right party and a wrong party. They're all in sin. And so we got to remember, here's another way of thinking about the different possibilities. Not every conflict or disagreement in the church, this is a, a third possibility, It could be that one's right, one's wrong. It could be that everybody's wrong. It could also be this kind of situation, a conflict in the church that does not rise to the level that James describes here. This would be a minor disagreement where we still, we may disagree over something. We may disagree over the best music to sing or we might disagree over the best way to handle COVID-19, we might disagree over any number of things, but these are minor disagreements where we still view one another as fellow believers, fellow saints, we share fellowship with each other. These are disagreements over secondary and tertiary matters, and it's wisest to leave them there. James is not talking about that kind of division here uh, either. Um, Keep this in mind as well. Um, While James says here we should not have fights and quarrels, there are things to fight over. Uh, We are supposed to fight with the world. The world is a dark place. We fight by bringing the light of Christ's love and Christ's wisdom and Christ's word into that darkness to shine the light. Of course, the darkness does not like that light, and so the, the, the darkness fights against it. Fighting in that sense, fighting with the world, wrestling with the world, is part of our mission. And it's invigorating because that's exactly what God wants us to do, to wrestle with the principalities and powers, to seek to bring the word of God to bear on all of life, all of culture. That's our mission, to disciple the nations. That entails a fight of some sort. That's a good fight. That's an invigorating fight. But when Christians have to fight with one another, when we find ourselves fighting with other people in the church, that can be exhausting, that can be wearying, that can be a distraction from our mission. So keep all those things in mind. There's, there's certain kinds of conflict James has in view here, certain kinds of conflict he does not. Now, further, uh, other things about this that James says that are interesting. He asks the question, where do fights and quarrels among you come from? Why do you have these fights and these quarrels among your members, the members of your body, your community? He's going to answer that question. And in answering that question, he's going to show us the nature of this strife within the church and the solution. So by the time we get done reading this section of James, if we will do what James says, we will find peace restored within the church. So let's look at it. Why do we have fights instead of fellowship? Why is there war instead of peace in the church? Well, there are three reasons that James gives here that we can identify. Three reasons why we have fights uh, rather than fellowship or conflict rather than community in the church. Pleasure, prayerlessness, and pride. Those three things. Pleasure, prayerlessness, and pride. Look at each one of these. Pleasure. You see this especially in the first four verses. It comes at us in a lot of different ways. Pleasure, our pleasure seeking is at the root of our problems with one another. Verse 1, James asks, do these fights and wars not come from your desires for pleasure that war within your members? And again, members here means not members of an individual body, but members of the community. 
They fight with one another. This is built into James' question. They fight with one another because each one seeks his own pleasure. Each one demands that his desire for pleasure be satisfied. In fact, verse 2, he picks up on this. He uses that word lust or desire. He says, you desire and you do not have. These are desires. These are godless desires. So really, they can't ever be satiated. They can't ever really be satisfied. But these unfulfilled desires lead to conflict. We're trying to get our desires all satisfied. And so that leads us into war with one another. Verse 3, after accusing them of not praying, he says when they do pray, they pray selfishly. They ask just for their own pleasure, just for the sake of their own pleasure. Their own pleasure has become their highest priority in their prayers. They want God to rubber stamp their selfish desires. And so they have this conflict because even their prayer lives are taken up into this desire to satisfy themselves in every way. And then, of course, in verse 4, he goes on to talk about friendship with the world, which is most certainly all about living for pleasure. It's living in the world's way. It's living for the world's approval, wanting the world to approve of the way you live, uh, wanting to uh, live in a worldly kind of way. Well, what does James mean by all of this? Why this attack on pleasure? We've got to understand, pleasure is not bad in and of itself. We've talked about this before. Scripture again and again affirms we can enjoy God's gifts. God, in fact, commands us to enjoy God's gifts. God wants us to enjoy all that he has to offer us. And the fact is, we are programmed, our our very DNA programs us to live for pleasure. To seek happiness in all we do. God himself is a pleasure seeker. Psalm 115 tells us our God is in the heavens. He does as he pleases. God seeks his own pleasure, his own happiness. Pleasure drives human behavior as well. Pascal, the great Christian philosopher, put it this way. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but towards this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. We are always pleasure-seeking. We're simply programmed to seek after our own pleasure. You cannot turn off the pleasure-seeking switch inside your heart. Uh, you, you can't undo that. You, you, you can't change that about yourself. And it's not a bad thing in and of itself to seek your happiness. The question is, where are you seeking your happiness? How do you seek your happiness? You can't turn off that pleasure switch in your soul, but you can redirect it. Desire in itself is not bad. That's not James' point. Unfallen Adam and Eve had desire even before they sinned. Jesus has desires... So what does James have in view? Well, he has in view fallen desires, sinful desires, inordinate desires, selfish desires, a life that is totally focused on the self with no point of reference outside the self, where the only good is the comfort of the self or the power of the self or the enjoyment that the self gains for the self. There's no reference point outside the self. When you cannot get outside of yourself, that's the wrong kind of pleasure. See, we desire the wrong thing. Or we desire the right thing in the wrong way. That's the kind of 
pleasure-seeking or desiring James has in view. The kind of thing James has in view is this. We, we have things that we enjoy, but we don't look at those joys as gifts given to us by God. Instead, they become ends in themselves that we think we've earned or that we're owed. And so we get, as Martin Luther said, we get curved in on ourselves. When we live for our own pleasure in this way, what happens when others get in the way of what we think will make us happy? When you live for self in this way, what happens when other people get in the way of your pleasure seeking? When other people seem to stand in the way of your desires? Fights and quarrels, just as James says. It's like two toddlers fighting over one toy. You know, each one thinks this toy, having this toy will make him happy. And so they're going after it. And what happens? Their desire for pleasure leads them to, to fight and to war and to quarrel with one another. What happens when we look at the world this way, when we make our pleasure in this kind of way, the center of our lives? Other people become our enemies because other people come to be seen as obstacles in the way of our happiness. Other people get in the way of my happiness. And that leads to fights and quarrels. Interesting, too, here, James ties this in with coveting in verse 2. Coveting, of course, is when you want what another has. Or a lot of times it can even be simply wanting what another wants because our desires tend to tend to imitate the desires of others we see around us. So what happens when you covet? When you find yourself wanting what somebody has or wanting what somebody else wants, and what comes of that? Rivalry, division, a kind of ungodly competition. Other people getting in the way of my happiness. And so other people become the enemy. Jean-Paul Sartre, the uh, existentialist philosopher, summed up his self-focused way of life by saying, Hell is other people. Hell is other people. Other people are my hell because they are in the way of my self-expression and my self-fulfillment. And James says, this is why we murder others in our hearts. But even in physical ways, when that happens, this is why. This is why murder happens. Other people get in the way of our happiness, so they must be eliminated. So selfish pursuits of pleasure are the cause of quarrels within the church. That's where James starts. When each person puts his happiness above the happiness of others, when we love ourselves instead of our neighbors, rather than loving our neighbors as ourselves, that's when you get fights and quarrels. When we all desire happiness each in our own way so there is no shared common good, There's no shared happiness. There's no sense that happiness is something that we can come to together. That's when you get conflict rather than community. Wars rather than peace. Fighting rather than fellowship. But then there's also prayerlessness that James mentions here. Why don't we have peace and harmony in the church? Why is community and friendship lacking? James says, we have not because we ask not. It's at the end of verse 2. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. The church often misses great blessings because we do not pray for them. God wants us to pray for his gifts so we will experience him and know him as the giver. And God gives his gifts in answer to prayer in part to bring us together. 
to bring us together as a community. You know, it's so great when a whole community of people has been praying together for something and then God answers that prayer. And we can all rejoice together in God's gift of an answer. And we've seen that happen many, many times in the life of this church, in the history of this church. The very fact that this church continues to exist really is the fruit of our prayer together. It's the fruit of going to God and asking God to sustain us and and grow us and provide for us. We've seen this kind of thing happen again and again. It's so great. So on a Wednesday night, a Wednesday night vespers where we've been sharing a something to pray for, a petition, and you come to the point where you can turn that petition into a thanksgiving because God has answered. That's such a beautiful thing when we ask and then receive. Uh, uh, you know, we can turn what James says around here. A church that prays together is a church that stays together. Whereas a prayerless church will disintegrate very quickly into factions. And remember too, in a lot of scripture, the word prayer is virtually synonymous with the Psalms. And so the prayers are really sung. And so we could put it this way. A church that sings together, church that sings psalms together, that sings prayers together, stays together. It's really a key to fellowship, a key to unity. Of course, a church that doesn't sing together in this way, that doesn't pray together in psalm, is going to divide. That's how it is. So there's a second source of quarrels and fights. It's when we fail to pray together. Prayer unites us in heart, in mind, in spirit. When we don't pray, we don't get that unity. We end up fighting with one another. But then there's a third reason James identifies here, a third reason for the fighting and quarreling within the church, and it is pride. That most sinister of all sins, pride. In verse 6, he quotes from Proverbs 3, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Indeed, James says, God gives grace upon grace. Now think about pride for just a minute. Maybe this is obvious, but I think it's worth talking about for just a minute. What is pride and why does it lead to this infighting? Why does pride breed this kind of conflict? It should be obvious, but let's talk it through for just a minute. What is pride? Pride is when I have to be the star of my own show. Pride means I worship in the church of the self. Pride means I have become my own little God. Pride means self-absorption. Self-centeredness, self-righteousness, self-indulgence, self-glorifying. Pride means you have to have the approval and acceptance of others on your own terms or you will despise others. Pride leads you to look down on everyone else. You magnify their flaws and you justify your own. That's what the Pharisees did. They magnified everybody else's sins and they... Excuse their own. That's pride. That's pride as a way of life. And you can see how that kind of pride destroys community. How pride divides. How pride turns us against one another. Pride says, I am the boss of me. I will do things my way. And when you get everybody trying to do things in their own way, what happens? You have all kinds of conflict. Pride says, I have to be right all the time. Pride says, I will promote myself and my agenda over everyone and everything else, no matter the cost. Pride says, you have offended me, so I'm going to hold it against you forever. I'll never reconcile. I'll be bitter to the end. Because that's what pride does. Pride 
holds those grievances against other people forever. Pride says, I have to be better than you, wealthier than you, more popular than you, better looking than you, smarter than you. That's what pride does to us. And I'll tell you, I know we need to take all kinds of precautions with COVID. Obviously, you know, we've talked about that. But I'll tell you this. One of the problems with COVID right now is that it is training us primarily to see fellow image bearers, that is other human beings, primarily as threats to my health more than anything else. I think COVID's having this effect, at least in some quarters, where you come to see other people primarily as vectors of disease and they're primarily as threats to your health. Okay, that's a problem. I mean, obviously we want to be smart and wise in how we protect ourselves. But pride does the same kind of thing in terms of how pride views other people. Pride leads us to see others not as friends or fellow servants or fellow members of the communion of saints, fellow citizens of a shared kingdom. No, pride leads me to see other people as threats. Other people become threats to my success, my power, my status, my happiness. And so I end up despising other people. Pride leads us to see one another as enemies. Pride can't create community. It creates conflict, confusion, and chaos. It destroys community. Now, these three things taken together, living for pleasure, prayerlessness, and pride... These are the basic features of what James means when he talks about friendship with the world. It means you have given in to the evil system of the world's culture. The the fallen world order has come to dominate your life. The way of the world, apart from God's redemptive action, that's now your way of life. Those who love the world this way, James says, makes themselves enemies of God. They make themselves enemies of God. Now, we know we are supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. That's the Christian cliche, but it captures a lot of truth. We're supposed to be distinct from the world, but not separated from the world. We're supposed to be friends with God rather than friends with the world, right? That's what James is saying here. Friendship with God doesn't mean we leave the world, but it does mean we live differently in the world. And so it's not like you can have one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world James doesn't want you to live that kind of divided life. He's spoken against that. He wants you to be all in on God's kingdom. But because you're all in on God's kingdom, for that very reason, you live a different kind of life in the world. You will live in the world as a friend of God. Friendship with God is really the solution to these divisions. Fellowship with God, nearness to God, friendship with God, this is the answer. See, when we are enemies of God, we all too easily become enemies of one another. But when we are friends with God, we become friends with one another. Friendship with God means friendship with God's image bearers. Those are being restored to his image. It creates community. See, this is the answer then to the fighting and quarreling in the church. It's friendship with God. If we want to further unpack friendship with God, think of it this way. It's the opposite of those things that make up friendship with the world. If friendship with the world is living for pleasure, prayerlessness, and pride, then obviously friendship with God is going to be the opposite of those things. Friends of God will seek to find pleasure in pleasing God. We find happiness in the same things that make God happy. 
As friends of God, we pray with God. We carry on this covenantal conversation that is what prayer is all about. We draw near to God. We talk with God. That's, again, what prayer is all about. And James talks about drawing near to God in verse 8. That's really all about prayer and worship. And when we pray, we pray with kingdom priorities. And finally, friends with God, friends of God, are people who are humble. Think about this. Friendship with God is incredibly humbling. James has already talked about how Abraham became the friend of God by trusting in him. But Abraham's friendship with God was obviously not a friendship of equals. Our friendship with God is not a friendship between equals at all. And so friendship with God makes us humble. Humility means that God becomes the star of your show. Jesus becomes the star of your show. In fact, humility is so important here. James really focuses on it twice. uh, There in verse 6 and again in verse 10. Look at what James says about humility. We'll close with this. Look at what James says about humility because this is the most crucial thing. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Indeed, grace upon grace. God's grace is like water. It runs downhill. It flows to those who have stooped, those who have humbled themselves. The Holy Spirit is like water. He flows downhill to those who have humbled themselves, those who have brought themselves love. God's grace is not given to everyone here. In fact, in this context, God's grace is conditional. Now you say, how can grace be conditional? Isn't that a contradiction in terms? Isn't grace unconditional? Well, note the condition. Who receives grace? It's the humble. Humility is not so much a work we do to garner grace. It is really the anti-work. We humble ourselves. The condition is humility. The condition of receiving grace, in other words, is recognizing your need for it. Seeing that you are helpless and need help, that you are empty and need to be filled, that you are guilty and need to be forgiven, that you are alone and need community, that you are foolish and need wise counsel. God gives grace to the humble, to the contrite, to the lowly. And this is God's way all throughout His Word. Humility brings an end to needless conflicts and quarrels. Humility builds community. Because think about it, in humility I have stooped low before God, and so now I can stoop low to serve and sacrifice for the sake of others. Humility builds up the very kind of community that pride tears down. The humble are patient. They're not easily offended. They're going to be quick to forgive because they know they're sinners in need of forgiveness. The humble will rein in their desires and direct them in a godly way because they know they need that outside guidance. They can't just do whatever they feel like doing. They know their desires need channeling. The humble see their insufficiency, and so they pray. And when they pray, they don't just ask for things for themselves. They pray kingdom prayers, kingdom-shaped prayers. In short, the humble have befriended God, and so they befriend others as well. To be a friend of God means you are a friend of his people. The humble have been reconciled to God, and so they seek reconciliation with others. The humble seek peace through wisdom. And because the humble have lowered themselves, what will happen? James tells us what the whole rest of Scripture tells us, because when we humble ourselves, what does God do? God exalts us. 
When we humble ourselves, God glorifies us. God lifts us up. Isaiah sums this up so well. Isaiah 57, God says this, The one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. When we become friends with God, we're humbled. And out of that humility grows community. May that be God's work among us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.